Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome back to another episode of Talk Dizzy to Me. I'm Dr. Danielle Tate, a vestibular physical therapist, and as always, joined by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross, and then a more frequent visitor, uh, Jeff Walter. And today we are joined by Dr. Sue Whitney. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen her MedBridge uh, uh, lectures and a lot of her continuing education courses or know her from the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. We, are, we couldn't be more happy to have you here. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. <laughs> so we're looking to pick your brain for some pearls of wisdom. So Jeff, you came up with some really great questions to kind of dig into. Why don't you take it away? Sure. Before we do that, I just want to thank Sue because she's she's really laid a foundation, especially in the area of vestibular rehab for all of us. So I thank you for your contribution in the way of research and teaching and clinical practice that have kind of paved the way for the rest of us. So thank you, Sue. So one of our initial questions was, what drew you to vestibular rehab? Joe Furman, um, my colleague Joe Furman, because there really wasn't much in terms of vestibular rehab when I started. Joe came to a PT faculty meeting and said that he'd send his patients uh, to, to PT because he'd heard about Faye Horak and Angela Mike Cook at the time. And all they did was give them a cane and told them to go home. And he said that he thought there was more to it than that. And, and so he came to a faculty meeting, made his little plea, and two of us volunteered. And 35 years later, I'm still there. And she lasted about six months and she was gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for everyone. <laughs> honest to God. Yeah, so he dumped all these, These there, there were probably, you know, here they are. He, he gave me all these papers. That, there were probably six or eight of them at the time and said, uh, read these, this is what's out there. And, and, and I thought, well, this isn't much, uh, but I got started and then I got really involved and decided that I wanted to become good at it. Great. If you could go back in time, like to the novice portion of your career in this, what were some common misconceptions you had, you know, that you could go back in time and tell yourself, you know, that, what would be some things that would come to mind in that area? I used to believe that everybody got better, and that's not true. A lot of people get better. But even the people with vestibular hypofunction, for example, I, in my younger years, I would always tell them, oh, there's no doubt you're going to get 100% better. I don't say that now because that's not true. Mm -hmm. People get a lot better, but there, there was a really neat paper out of Michael Hamagi's lab done by a psychologist years ago, and I, I had the pleasure to actually read her dissertation as an outside reader. And even the people who really were good performers afterwards, they still had some symptoms, but they mm -hmm. could live with them. They, they weren't worried about it. So that, that's one mistake I made. The other, uh, another big mistake I made was that I, I thought more was better. Just kill them. Push, 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 push. <laughs> and then I made people sick, 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 and they didn't come back. So I learned that moderation is a lot better than just pushing people through because it doesn't work real effectively. Those, those were two biggies. I also learned that some things that people do or talk about in the literature just don't work, at least for me. And for example, one, one of the things that Norier, because Norier was one of the few articles that existed when I started, he, you guys, he I had, can relate to all this. I know you're younger, but <laughs> all these names are like 
<laughs> yeah. So he, I'm with he you. had, yeah, I mean, he had all these movements. You were supposed to do like 22, I don't know, it was 18, 22, some kind of wild number of movements, right? And you were supposed to ask him how busy they got and how long it lasted. And it would take me like over an hour to do that. And I thought, you know what? This is just not worth it. So that's another thing that I bagged along the way. Not that, not that it doesn't have value in some people, but it certainly doesn't have value in all people. So what I've learned is that that you have to pick and choose based on the patient's presenting signs and symptoms about what kind of test and measures and even what kind of assessment you're going to do because not all things are going to give you information about all people. Yeah. So in the beginning, Dr. Whitney, then much of it for you sounds like it was trial and error where we've had the the luxury of having you pave the way for us to learn from. I can't even imagine six to eight papers starting out in such a complex field. It, it is amazing because if you if, if you Google vestibular rehab now, I think over a thousand or not Google, but on PubMed, at least a thousand papers come up. But at the time, there there really were eight to ten, and and that's it. Most of them were written by physicians, and uh, Willie Deweet from from Belgium was one of the few physiotherapists that was writing about it. And then Anne my cook and Faye uh, had written just a little bit to get people excited about it. And, and that was all that existed. So I really didn't have a close to what I was doing. And sometimes I still don't have a clue of what I'm doing, but, but I have more of a clue because if, if you look, there really is some great evidence and emerging evidence that what we do makes a difference. Yeah, I agree. I tell people often that, when I started almost 25 years ago that you were happy if there was one vestibular rehab course in your area, like in a six month period. And now there's a vestibular rehab course somewhere every week, you know, every weekend. And there are just so many more resources to pull from than, than what we had when we were back in our novice stage. Uh, so the, Oh, and the, I think the biggest misconception I had just to mention quickly was I way early in my career, I way overweighted the type of, symptoms my patients had instead of overweighting timing triggers and associated symptoms i put way too much stock in the type of sensation a patient had and that if it was vertigo it had to be vestibular and if it was if they were faint it had to be uh cardiovascular and i way overweighted that as an attribute with history because as we know patients often change adjectives within five minutes when you ask them what they feel when they have their symptoms so that was a common misconception i had early on yeah, and I, I really try to understand what the patients are saying with the words that they use. And mm. so sometimes they'll say, oh, I, I have vertigo. Well, tell me what that is. Well, I get a little lightheaded when I get up. Ah, don't use that word. So we, right. we go through education about that because they've really sent the physician down the wrong track and often mm. sent me the patient with the wrong diagnosis because of the words that the patients used. Yeah, 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 totally agree. Mm -hmm. Is there a treatment or like an exam procedure or a treatment that you found helpful that maybe, especially a novice clinician, would not be as aware of that you could share with the audience? Anything that comes to mind that you've used that maybe others may not be as familiar with as far as a test or a measure or an intervention? I, I use a whole lot of cool things that uh, I haven't necessarily written up about. Um, for example, I'm writing up a, a paper now about directed energy exposure. 
I don't know if you guys know what that is, but there, there were some diplomats in Cuba and also in China that were exposed to what's called uh, directed energy, maybe microwave energy that nobody knows for sure. The, this was, these are all Department of State employees. And what was interesting with this is that um, the, the gentleman reported that he was having trouble with directions. Right, so sense of direction. So there's a Santa Barbara sense of direction test that, that I used, for example, to try and document that he was having difficulty. I mean, he's an engineer by background, so it doesn't make sense that an engineer would have trouble with direction. But we do know that the vestibular system is involved yeah. in the sense of direction, and there's hippocampal mm -hmm. damage or at least uh, atrophy uh, in people with bilateral loss, and they're saying that that may also be true in people with unilateral loss. And mm -hmm. this guy has symptoms that are consistent with either brain trauma, 3PD, or vestibular migraine. And what, what I did was I gave him the questionnaire, and I asked him to fill it out the way he felt now. And then what he did, which was really interesting to me, is he, he said, I felt, I tried it both ways. I told you what I would have felt like before this happened. And then I'm telling you now what my sense of direction is. And it was really different. So that's, that's something that, that I found that I thought, well, that's, that's really a good tool. And, and what I also try and do is, and have been working on uh, with some wonderful colleagues is trying to shorten some of the things that we have. One of the things we're, we've got under review right now is a shortened version of the visual vertigo analog scale, which I like. Now I don't use that on all people, but anybody who complains of having difficulty with lots of motion in the periphery, uh, that's my go-to measure to, because it's short, it's quick, and it gives valuable information that Elizabeth Annenbaum came up with. So there's some examples, but, but mm -hmm. I try and pull from other places in the literature. I know it's not been validated on people necessarily with vestibular disorders, but I do try to, to garner from other fields what we could use. Just just like the dual tasking stuff that Hal's been doing, uh, that I'm sure you guys are aware of with concussion. He's, I, I think, I think he's an athletic trainer. I'm almost, I know he is because I'm an athletic trainer too. And he's been working with kids with concussion, with dual tasking and really getting deep into some of the dual tasking tasks. So that's a, another thing that I pull out of my hat, not just counting, but uh, letters backwards. You can do skipping letters forward, skipping letters backwards, do uh, mathematical stuff, naming, and those kinds of things for dual tasking are, are really helpful. And one of the things I've learned is that people may be good at one of those dual tasks, but not the next one. So not all dual tasks are the same. So that's a, a, another little take home uh, to think about. So if you're good at math, if you ask an engineer to do the math one, they're going to rock it out of the park. Mm -hmm. You ask an engineer potentially to do letters backwards, uh, you may see a very different performance on the dual task because that may be much more difficult for them to do. So those are some examples of what, how I think, try and think a little out of the box. Now with the dual tasking that you were talking about, what vestibular exercises are you typically pairing that cognitive piece with? Actually, sometimes just standing. <laughs> Uh, depending on what their balance looks like, I, I the off, most often I use it during gait, and then to really tweak it, uh, we'll sometimes use uneven surfaces. And we published a paper recently where we we had uh, an uneven surface, and we had little blocks of wood underneath 
at different angles. So it was really an uneven surface that was totally unpredictable. And we looked to see how they did on dual task while they were walking on uneven surfaces and then even surfaces. Cool. All right, we want to fire some BPPV questions at you here to see what your thoughts are on the following. Um, do you think there's any role at all for post-treatment precautions in patients you see? Are there like exceptional situations where you do think it's advisable to consider them? I know the majority of the literature, you know, struggles to show that in large groups of patients, it makes much difference, but are you, do you think there's select cases where from your experience that it may be have some, that may have some value? Yes, I do do it occasionally. I try and follow the guidelines. So the clinical practice guidelines that, that came out from the American Academy of Head and Neck Surgery say you don't have to do it. And, and I agree. I think in the majority of cases you don't. But just like me, I'm sure you guys have seen those people that no matter what you do, they're clear when they leave and when they come back, mm. they got BPPV again. And I'm scratching my head going, mm. what intarnation is going on here? What am I doing wrong? So then I'll try every maneuver known to man that I know. If that doesn't work, and, and even in the interim sometimes, if, if it just keeps coming back, I, I, I do a couple things. I, I, because I was on the first task force, and I said sometimes, you know, head motions or whatever make a difference, and they're like, no, 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 that's not in the literature. I said, okay, I, I lost that one. I fought, fought the hard battle and lost. But what, um, for example, I had one patient that kept coming back, just like you said. She looked great when she left. She'd come back a couple days later, a week later, and she'd have BBBV again, posterior canal, same canal. So I started asking her questions because you're not supposed to restrict any movement. That's what the guidelines say. And she told me, I said, well, what do you do during the day? You know, and she, so we went through it. And then she told me about eye drops. She said, I put in eye drops. I said, well, show me how you do that. And she tipped her head back and she, in, in standing, and she opened up and, and was in a lot of extension and a little bit of rotation. Great place. If you were going to dump crystals uh, out, great way to get it in the posterior canal. She, she demonstrated a mini Dick's Hall fight for you. <laughs> yeah, in standing. Yeah. So I said, mm, you know what? Let's try something different. And I said, this is not according to the guidelines. We're just going to experiment here. And I taught her to lay down in supine with her head on the pillow and put her drops in that way. And then I didn't see her again. Now, I don't tell people don't look up. I don't tell people not to, to do things. But occasionally I do because it seems to work. And if somebody just keeps coming back every time, I, I do say, you know, like maybe not. I, I don't tell them. I know what the rules are. This is what I tell them. So, you know what? For everybody, I say, I don't want you to look up or down for a couple hours because I don't. Every time they reach down for a purse when they're going to leave, if it's a woman, they seem to get BPBV again. So don't don't look down. Don't look up for me. You can look right and left all you want. I don't care. It's not going to yeah. make a difference. And then I also tell them they're not allowed to lay down until they go to bed at night. And I know that that's not in the guidelines, but that's what I tell them. And I tell them, I said, this, this is not what the guidelines say. This is what how I practice. Seems to work fairly well. Um, don't know whether it's better than nothing at all, but, or, you know, like not, not 
doing, you know, not giving them any restrictions. But I do that for, for that day because I've had way too many people go home. And they, they lay down in that darn recliner. Uh, they Their head's back. It's rotated. And they come back with BPVD again. Yeah. Whether it's that or not, I don't know. But that's what I do. Yeah, I think also if somebody is extremely anxious and they have nausea with the treatment and they vomit and they're traveling far, I tend to tell them to, for one night, follow precautions. Even if it just slightly increases their chances of success, they don't seem to mind. A lot of them have been sleeping in a recliner for to avoid being re fully recumbent for weeks or months before they see us anyhow, so they don't seem to mind one more night in some cases. But Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we published a paper recently with uh, my colleagues in Brazil that actually demonstrated, and, and this is just something for you guys to know too, if you haven't read the paper anyway, but what we found was that when people, we call it a Tamarkin-like event, when people do that, whoa, mm -hmm. they look like they're falling back. Well, they don't look like they throw themselves back. Sometimes they throw themselves forward. Uh, when that happens, they get better. So that's actually a positive thing. Uh, I, when you see that after a repositioning, and I, I have a, I'm sorry, go ahead. I have a strong, I have a strong theory on that because I've, I've really, really, really watched eye movements close. And when I see that real strong falling response that you never forget as a therapist with these patients when it's real strong, mm -hmm. I think the debris is transiently dumping into the anterior canal in the third position of their epi. So you're maneuvering it around the posterior canal gets near the common cruise and dumps transiently into the anterior canal. When you sit them up, they get transient anterior canal excitation. And I think that's why we get those real strong falling responses when we sit patients up occasionally, especially if I'm using a tilt table to treat somebody that doesn't move well. But sorry to interrupt. So what were your thoughts on it? <laughs> no, no, I, 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 it's really a strong response as, as we all know. And, and I, the last time that it happened to me recently, of course, it's a lawyer. She comes in, she's cranky, right? And she wants her BPVV fixed. And I'm like, yeah, I can do this. This should be fine. And darn if it doesn't happen to her. And she and she has to go to court that day. And she was, you know, it's not very, I, I, I don't remember too many nasty people in my career, but this lady was just sort of nasty. And, you know, oh, you know, she's a lawyer and blah, blah, blah. And and, and she she really did you know, had the nausea, had the fallback kind of thing. And so I gave her the paper. I said, take a look at this paper and see what you think. And then of course I'm out of town the next day and I get, I get this call from her and I'm thinking, Oh man, I'm going to just get ripped apart by this woman. <laughs> you know, like this, this is going to be bad. And she called me and she said, I wanted to thank you for helping me. I'm 100% better today. And here I'm, I'm worried going, Oh man, I'm, she's going to just, fire at me and it worked out great so but so the take-home message is if you see that regardless of what happened uh what what anatomically is happening because it did happen in i think it was in about 15 percent of the cases that we reported uh, and everybody who demonstrated that response had a negative dix hall pike the next time they came in mm -hmm. yeah that's good because I, I just had that yesterday <laughs> yeah. i just had that as well and he said to me i said I think we got it. We're going to reassess. And he said, yeah, okay, this will be a miracle if you just help me. <laughs> so now you can watched, say there's oh, a paper that's, now you can say there's a paper there that says that that's a positive sign. When right. I see, when I see that postural instability with sitting a patient up, when it's real strong, I think it's usually the anterior canal phenomenon. It's real transient, but I think it falls right um, 
through the anterior canal right back into the utricle. And I've left it alone when it's real strong like that. But look at the torsion would be my advice, because if it's right posterior canal involvement, if we see downbeat left torsion, to me, that's reversal nystagmus. And I'm not enthusiastic about seeing that because that to me typically means that the debris just um, settled back down in the yeah. posterior canal. But when it's in that anterior canal, you'll get downbeat with torsion to the ear you're treating. So I always really look closely at the torsion when I get that falling response. But when it's real intense, it's almost always the anterior canal phenomenon, I think. Well, okay. we, we talked about it in our theory. We actually thought that it was the, the otolithic crystals falling back in and actually jarring the otolith. So that's a, another potential theory for why that occurs. Mm. But, but the take home message to any PT listening is that you got to hold on to your patients at, uh, when you're absolutely. doing the maneuver mm. and yeah. hold on to them, not just for a few seconds when they come up, because mm. it doesn't happen just when you get them up. As you guys have seen, it also can happen when they go to stand up. And I've had people yeah. almost bash their heads in when they do, yeah. I call it the dumpster dive. They just fold <laughs> over and yeah. almost collapse on me. Yeah. It gets hard to convince students of that sometimes because they'll see you work with a couple of patients and the majority of the patients you know, might have a little instability, but you're, you're with them. And then that one patient where they get that real strong falling response, they're just not quite ready for it because they haven't seen it before. You almost you have, need to to have experience it, it to know. Yeah. Right, yeah. It happens one time and you never let it happen again, ever. <laughs> I want to say something back to the precautions. Sometimes I think it's important to actually make sure you're encouraging movement because a lot of these people are already so guarded. Well, how am I going to know if I actually help them if they're still avoiding everything that I, that triggered their mm -hmm. symptoms to begin with. So I think depending on the patient, you can really go to both extremes. Don't do this movement or please do this movement. Yeah. That's why I really try to, unless I'm desperate, I try not to let anybody tell anybody not to do things mm -hmm. because there really isn't great evidence for that. I mean, the, the evidence is pretty clear that they, they need to, to get moving. And I, I agree. That's why I think a lot of us make mistakes with people with BPPV because we don't have them come back. And I think that's a real disservice. Uh, having a negative Dix Hall Pike is good, but you ha I always say we have to make sure they get their life back. And that mm -hmm. means moving their head, bending over, uh, all the things that they did before. And, and if we can do that quicker, I mean, it usually I think happens anyway, but it doesn't happen in all people unless you, you really coax them to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think it happens a heck of a lot faster if we can encourage them to move more safely and effectively. And they know what their limitations, if there are any, uh, you know, what they are. Well, there's so much more research now suggesting that we should have patients um, do a little bit of vestibular therapy following maneuvers for beep and BV. And right. it's exactly the way you said, people aren't moving and they're guarded and they want to avoid positions. By bringing them back in, you know, it gives me more time to educate the patient on home maneuvers if they need this again for recurrences in the future, but to also make sure that they're functional, they're moving safely, they're doing the things that they're supposed to do, and that they're ready to go and be done with this by the time they walk out the door in a couple of visits. So mm -hmm. it's definitely worth it rather than just doing a Dick's Hall Pike and Epley and sending them on their way and never seeing them again. You know, it's good to bring them back in to educate them. I agree. And Danielle, I, mm -hmm. I, I actually rarely do uh, teach self maneuvers. Uh, after the, the paper came out a couple years back that said that uh, 
there's there's a high prevalence of it being in the opposite side when uh, and so i i don't do that very often and i have very strict criteria for who and i'm sure you do too for who you'll teach to do the self repositioning maneuver because if they're not uh, whitney's rules are you got to be smart the patient has to be smart <laughs> yep. the patient needs to bring a pillow i, I want to be able to document what pillow that they're going to use if they're going to do it over the, because I, I like the the head over the pillow maneuver mm -hmm. uh, for, for if I'm going to teach it. And yeah. I, I make them actually bring a partner or somebody else so that there's evidence that, that I taught them safely. Cause especially in older adults, that is a really compromising position if they get their mm -hmm. neck into too much extension. Mm -hmm. So uh, I am very adverse to being sued and I am trying to be extremely careful about who I choose to teach that to. No, you've got a really, really great point. And, you know, it's something that I think we struggle with now in talking to patients because we have this newfangled thing called the internet and everyone gets on the internet and they get on YouTube and they try the half somersault maneuver or they try something that they think looks correct. And, you know, we do a lot of education for educating our patients just as far as this isn't something you should just, you know, try willy nilly. You need to come in and get diagnosed and work with a therapist and go about this the proper channels. And typically you want them to bring in a spouse. You want them to bring in a, a caregiver, make sure that they've got the appropriate range and the ability to go through all of this stuff safely and comprehend it as well. Um, you know, but that was something that we also took into consideration when we uh, considered making a YouTube video for some of our uh, patients. You know, I made one out of years of going back and forth about this. But after looking at what some of the videos are on the Internet that these patients were looking at and trying at home, it was scary. It was very scary. So there's always a very, very fine line that we have to be careful with. Um, but there's just so much access now. It's hard. And you know I've seen so many canal conversions when these people are doing them on, at home. I'm sure oh, yeah. you have too, Jeff. It's a disaster. Yeah. They'll come in with multiple canal. And it doesn't happen in everybody. I only see the failures. So I don't know how many people are fixing it on their own. So that, yeah. to be honest. But but I see the failures. And they are really screwed up as compared to if I was just seeing them yeah. with a, a simple posterior canal BPPV. Yep. Mm -hmm. One thing to keep in mind, too, when patients try to self-treat, if they have posterior canal canalithiasis, the first thing they experience when they try to put their head over the pillow is an intense sensation that they're rotating over the pillow and they want to surge their head up, which is counterproductive with the maneuvers. I think it's hard for patients to hold their head back over the pillow because the illusion is telling them that they need to sit up to react to their head. You know, posterior canal excitation makes you feel like you're falling backwards. And so it's hard to fight that illusion for patients in that position. So move on to the next question. Do you believe in anterior canal BPV? Like how many cases would you stake your life on that you've seen where you're sure that they came in with debris free floating in their anterior canal? I have seen one. Joe Furman has seen three. Uh, so Dr. Furman has been seeing people with vestibular disorders for about 40 years. Yeah. I think he's seen three, at most five. Yeah. Um, do I think it happens? Yes. Is it rare? Yes. Uh, so Dario Iacovino is the one who came up with the anterior canal maneuver. Um, mm -hmm. The one that I saw was actually not even mine because the only one I ever thought it, I saw anterior canal was actually vestibular migraine that was causing the nystagmus that I was seeing. Mm -hmm. uh, and the one that Joe Furman was positive that he actually called me about, um, they had actually hung upside down in a car 
um, in their seatbelt for six hours before somebody oh, yeah. found them. That wow. can definitely cause uh. your canal BBV. And I saw the other one with Janet Callahan uh, up in in Boston, and there's absolutely no doubt that that lady had anterior canal BPBV, but um, I just I just don't see it. And anytime I that you. I see a paper that says there's a bunch of them, I don't believe it. <laughs> I know, I know. When I see 10% or 15%, I'm like, what clinic are you working in? Uh -huh. uh, well, uh, yeah, I totally Dr. Hominsky had the, the article that came out about the apogeotropic nystagmus with posterior canal um, uh, debris being stuck in the shorter arm or the non-ampullary arm of the posterior canal. So, you know, even the ones that we might have thought were anterior canal make us all kind of go back and rethink, oh crap, like maybe this was just that same side posterior canal and that's why everything worked because we were just in a different part of the, the arm. Um, but I, I think I think it exists, I'm, I'm kind of with you, I've only seen one true case of it and this was a person that I treated for posterior canal. She left my office, went to go train with her trainer who inverted her over an exercise ball into a headstand and then came back the next day with anterior canal. So that is the only time I've seen it. I believe that if it does exist, it's most likely due to a canal conversion um, of some sort. They typically have a history of beep and BV or, or something else to explain for it, like the short arm or non-ampullary arm or vestibular migraine. Because yeah, it should just, it should just fall ahead, out. No, no, I mean, it should just fall out if it's in the anterior canal anatomically. Yeah. It shouldn't be difficult to get out. So unless it's stuck in there, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense that it exists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We agree. It's amazing, though, when you teach courses, people have lots of questions about it. And I always kind of get to the point of telling them, in your hierarchy of learning, anterior canal BPV should be at the bottom of the barrel, I said, because even in very experienced clinicians, like we just talked to Susan Whitney and she's seen one case in 35 years. You don't need to worry about it so much. It's going to be so rare, uh, you know, when they don't understand the basics of vestibular migraine. Is an like put that higher on your hierarchy of learning than the intricacies of anterior canal BPV. I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> That's um, true. Yeah. I think you have a good line to use in the future, Jeff. Though Dr. Sue Whitney has seen one time in her career anterior canal thiasis. Well, you get the same answer from Neil Shepard too. Like I, he, he's single digits, like below five, and you know. So yeah, yeah. it's 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 very unusual. Okay, but here's I, my BP. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. But I do think it exists. Like it's just yeah. very unusual. So rare. Yeah. Um. Here's my black hole of BPPV treatment where I scratch my head and don't know what to do for it. And I've actually just learned to almost do nothing for it because it goes away usually. Posterior canal cupulolithiasis. Are you real confident that there's effective treatment for that? Because I have tried, you know, Samant maneuvers. I've tried vibration in a variety of positions. And I've not found anything to be real successful in liberating debris from the posterior canal cupula if it's stuck. And I think a lot of times it's stuck on the utricular side of the cupula. Um, but any pearls of wisdom there? I do think that yeah. exists. Have you tried the demi Samant or whatever? Have you tried that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that. I, I, I just shake their head like crazy. <laughs> Whitney and Furman's rule is that if it's stuck in there, you, you got to get it to move. If you get it to move, you can get it out. It doesn't matter right. what side it's yeah. on. And yeah. and so I, I, I do some pretty significant shaking with, yeah. of, of people's heads. And, uh, you know, I, I've we've tried um, – hair dryers on people's heads and lots of movement. So that's when that's one of the few times that I actually do ask people to do things at home with BPPV. And I'm sure you guys do too, because, it, you know, 
the few minutes that they're with me once or twice a week is not going to necessarily move that debris. They're going to have to do it on their own. And we got to figure out how to get, get all that stuff shaken up and out. Yeah. I've, I've just experience has been, cause I've seen, I've been at the same institution for 25 years. So I got, you get like a big BPPB fan club. So like I've seen patients with the classic forms of BPB and they come in with this cupulolithiasis presentation. And I've just learned that almost, it's usually so self-limiting that usually at a seven to 10 day follow-up, no matter what I've had them do, and I've lately been having them do nothing, it just seems to go away. And there is, I think, some evidence that dark cells are more concentrated near the cupula. So maybe it's in a good position to degrade by just leaving it there. I don't know. But I, I, don't, I feel comfortable diagnosing it, but I'm not real comfortable offering advice on what really works to fix it. Well, there isn't real good evidence yet. Mm, yeah. Uh, next question. Do you, th oh, let's take a break for a second. How much longer are you good for, Sue? Because I got I'm three I'm or four fine. Are you sure? sure? Okay. Yes. All right. Cut that out then, Daniel. <laughs> All right. So we'll start again. Do you support the development of vestibular rehab as an APTA board certified specialty? And what, like, just briefly, like, what's the background? Or is there any movement towards it? I fully support it. I supported it as much as I was allowed to when I was on the APTA Board of Directors. Uh, the initiative failed, went through, went the whole way up to, to the highest level of uh, rebuttal. Uh, and uh, the panel said no because they didn't feel that the group that brought it forward met the criteria. Uh, that we, they, they hadn't done everything they were supposed to. Um, what I've done since then, though, is um, try to figure out how to fix that. And I have been working with the Pennsylvania delegation to try and see if they will bring something forward to the House of Delegates for the American Physical Therapy Association and try to see if we can have a big, broad look at post-entry-level post education. You know, where do we want specialization to go? Do we want subspecialization, which I don't think it really is. I think it's a specialty period. Uh, but, you know, is subspecialization the way to go? What do we really want to do with residencies and fellowships? And to take a broad, broad pass with really smart people looking at this. Because what I wanted to do uh, when I first got off the board was I, I met with Michael Schubert and uh, with some other people and, and said, hey, you know, let's get started doing this again because it it's a four to five year process to get approval through the American uh, Board of, of uh, Specialties, uh, the ABPTS group. And uh, I was uh, I went and talked to the gal who was in charge of the panel and I said, you know, we're, we're going to get started. And she said, well, that's that's not going to work. you got a bigger problem than this. The bigger problem is people have to figure out where they, whether um, if you're not a, a section or an academy, can you have a specialization, all right? Mm -hmm. And right now, they're all academies or sections who have specialization. So I, I think it's a huge problem. That's one of the reasons why we're, we're starting at Pitt, the Advanced Vestibular PT program. And 
we are taking people like you and people like me and others. Um, and what we're trying to do is we've got an advanced spine program. So what we're trying to do is get people to that level. So the differential diagnosis skills are great across the, the age continuum. The people can demonstrate really good skills. There's tests, there's cases, there's journal clubs. So it's kind of like doing a mental, mental uh, kind of a smaller version of a, a, a like a, a little fellowship kind of thing um, mm -hmm. because there's not going to be anything for another four to five years minimum because of this. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's such a bummer. And yeah. I, I, I definitely am fully in support of it, but I don't think it's going to happen clearly uh, soon enough for me and anybody else who wants it. That probably includes me because I'm not too far behind you. <laughs> Uh, what particular areas of vestibular you think do you think are in most need of research? Central disorders, yeah. absolutely. Um, I've, I've read. Uh, I guess I was on somebody. It was an external reviewer for another um, dissertation out of that was out of South Africa. Really interesting, uh, where they looked at stroke survivors. And there, there, there actually was a neat stroke paper that just came out of uh, Norway, but central disorders definitely. So we're, you know, we're we're making advances with mild TBI concussion because that's there's a lot of money there, uh, but mm -hmm. but what we really need, I think, is some better evidence for vestibular migraine, which is a central condition. Uh, and boy, I'd sure love to to see if, if any of us could come up with some evidence that can help persons living with cerebellar disorders, you know, and even mm -hmm. Pike and Ica stroke, those are tough, but cerebellar disorders and dizziness are really a, a, a big problem. Mm -hmm. That's the yeah. toughest group to treat. And at least in, in a paper that we published years ago, that, that's the group that improves the least are those who've had damage to the cerebellum. Yeah, makes sense. What major or what, what advances do you anticipate, you know, if you could go into a crystal ball and look, you know, years out, what do you think are some things we'll be doing differently 20 years from now if you had to make a prediction? I know that's challenging to offer insight on that, but what are the biggest changes you see upcoming in the field? It's all, te it's all technology. And we, we are way too slow as PTs in adapting technology. I, I was just involved with the Technopalooza uh, presentation for the combined sections meeting that was held about two weeks ago. What he, what the one gentleman from New York said was that from when something is invented, it takes 17 years to move that technology where people accept it in the clinic, which I think is ludicrous. Mm. And this, this is already here. Uh, and for mm. those listening, this is, I have a cell phone in my hand. Um, in Copenhagen, when I was there uh, about a year and a half ago speaking, there was a guy who actually had a set of video goggles, well, it wasn't video goggles, but a pair of goggles that he dumped the person's cell phone into and could record eye movements. And they've already done it in Australia in a study, uh, where it, which was really cool. So they were trying to decide when the person was having symptoms, what was happening to their eyes in their home. And they gave mm -hmm. them these devices to actually record the eye movements. And it, it was just a really fabulous study so they could differentiate some of the eye movements that they saw with vestibular migraine versus Meniere's disease, especially, mm -hmm. which yeah. I found fascinating. So that's already in the home. You know, we're, we're working on a project now for the Department of Defense where I'm using, well, again, I don't do it. I am not anywhere smart enough to figure this all out. But I work with brilliant engineers, and this is a Department of Defense grant. So what we're doing is we're working on 
something so that uh, we can analyze their eye and facial and use facial recognition software and i can tell you how what percentage of time you're keeping your eyes on the target i can tell you how fast you're moving your head mm -hmm. um, we've got we're working on accelerometers now and we could look at your postural control and the other cool cool feature that they're designing right now that we haven't tested yet is we're developing a system where you can use an ipad you know like your standard ipad with an app and you can do gate analysis gait analysis, like step yeah, so. length, stride length, step width. Uh, we're going to look at rhythmicity, all the ki kinds of things, work on dual tasking. This is what the Department of Defense wants. And these are really exciting initiatives. So all of us are going to have to figure out how to use technology like quick because it, it's here and it works and it's cheap. Accelerometers are cheap. You got to, you got, you know, you got, you essentially have one in your phone and you know people are using the timed up and go uh you know and looking at kind of the smoothness of the timed up and go based on you know your cell phone there's just all kinds of cool cool things like that mm -hmm. and, and telehealth is here uh we're uh, michael schubert and i and, and uh, sarah and a couple other folks are going to do a telehealth survey i'm working on that right now to try and find out what doesn't work with vestibular rehabilitation. Not what does, because we know we know a lot of it works, but we don't know when we shouldn't do it. So that's what we're really trying to probe. And the neurologists are already doing it. They've published two papers uh, through COVID that came out uh, a couple months ago that are they're saying these are some of the things that you can do in terms of examining your your uh, patient via telehealth. But I, I want to get a sense of what physical therapists and physiotherapists around the world think is okay to do through telehealth. Hmm. So virtual is here. I, I've been doing it for years Ill, illegally. You know, I like, <laughs> but I usually do it with people outside the country so they can't sue me. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so I've, treated, I've treated people in the Middle East. I've treated people like in the UK, uh, but not too many. And I don't do that illegally in the United States <laughs> because I don't want to go to jail. Yeah, we, we don't want you to either. Mm -hmm. uh, another technology question. In subjects with bilateral vestibular loss, there's always there's been some of this research on vibratory prosthetics to give them a vibratory sense of how they're swaying in space. Is there any advancement with having that available commercially yes. for patients? Yeah, I've, I've Can had you discuss it, that with us because it seems like a it, great idea, but it just it, I haven't seen it get to the market real well. It, it, it is. It's approved. It's approved. Uh, actually, Herman Kingma has a device. Uh, there's two. Yeah. There's one out, out of Switzerland, which I've tried. And Herman, Herman is just a, a brilliant. He's a physicist, I believe, and he's yeah. retired, but he's running a, a, a company that has a Vibrotech vest. He sent me one, and I tried it on a patient here. And uh, what he reports is that it either works or it doesn't work and you just have them put it on and if it works it's great and if it doesn't work it's just not going to work and my patient tried and tried and didn't didn't help her at all but mm. and some people I, I mean i've seen the results herman is showing very very good results with that and the vestibular did your subject have bilateral loss oh did your, she, did your, your complete, patient have bilateral loss by complete, complete okay. bilateral loss i mm. mean total bilateral loss so right. yeah and oh, it, it, it didn't work for her but the vestibular so implant is coming. But we're still at a point just on the vibratory device where it's not commercially available in the United States for therapists to. It is not mm -hmm. FDA approved. 
right. it is approved. I, I can't remember what the the agency is in Europe, but it's approved in Europe, but it hasn't been approved yet in the United States. And knowing Herman, um, that'll happen. Yeah. He has some great lectures on YouTube, if anybody's interested, if you do a YouTube search on Herman Kingma. Kingma, K-I-N-G-M-A, right? Yep. He's brilliant. Yeah. yeah I, I enjoyed listening. I think it was an anatomy lecture he gave. It's on YouTube. Um, that's really good. So thanks. Can I say one thing about telehealth? It was music to my ears to hear that you were doing this even pre-pandemic because I also was, and people looked at me like I had 27 heads. So to hear <laughs> that Dr. Sue Whitney was doing telehealth pre-pandemic, biggest smile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it works for most things and for that's most, yeah. what I want to try and find out what people like you say, that's, that's as far as I'll go, you know, mm -hmm. like with this, I wouldn't do it. And, and that's what uh, actually I was working on before we started this evening to mm -hmm. try and get that questionnaire up and hopefully you guys will answer it because uh, the more people that answer the richer it'll be for all of us to learn from each other about what we all think is safe or not safe to do. Absolutely. You mentioned bio, you mentioned implants. Can you give us just some an update on where we stand with that? The first well, there's there's three groups in the U.S. that I know they're involved, and that's the University of Washington uh, at Harvard. Uh, there's some work being done um, by by Richard, and then at uh, Hopkins. And Hopkins has, I think, the most people that have had the, the implant, and they have the capability, I think, with theirs to actually stimulate, stimulate all three of the canals um, with, with the, the electrodes, the way they've got, got it positioned. Um, the Raymond Van, Vandenberg is doing a lot of the work in, in Europe, and he is uh, in the Netherlands. And uh, they're actually for the Association uh, for Research on Otolaryngology, the ARO meeting, they're doing a, a vestibular implant uh, discussion uh, with all these key players. Uh, what I have seen in the, the, the group in the Netherlands, and, and Herman's work with a lot of those people uh, through Raymond's group and, and, and uh, some of the other surgeons that are involved in that, and also the videos that I've seen out of Hopkins, that, that it really seems to work. What I tell my patients, though, is, and, and I know that uh, my buddy at Hopkins doesn't like this, but I always say, don't be the first in line. You know, you want to make sure they get, you want to make sure they get it right and then go ahead and try it. Uh, yeah. But, but it is exciting. And I think it's got uh, great potential. What, what, uh, what they always, always told me was, you know, figure about 10 years uh, and, and then it'll work because cochlear implants started about the same way uh, in terms of mm -hmm success and failure. So one of the things I, I have worried about with the vestibular implant, and Michael Schubert and I were involved as uh, PT, not not really consultants, but we were invited to these amazing meetings uh, that were held in Europe. And we sat around with all the physicians. And one of the things, like one of the talks I did uh, for them was, uh, don't choose these people for your studies, because <laughs> if you do, you're going to get really funky results. So who, you know, who to pick uh, to, to try and figure out if this thing is really going to work? And how do you want to screen them? And, mm -hmm. and what characteristics should they have? So, you know, like if you're a warrior, if you're, if you're a catastrophizer, that's not a person that you want in an early clinical trial 
to do a vestibular implant. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't get the implant later, but that's not who you want to make judgment about whether yeah. this thing works or not. Mm -hmm. So, so that was really exciting. So Michael and I went to at least two of two of those meetings in Europe and met with the physicians. And, and one of the things, for example, I said was like, what happens when you turn it off? Okay. Yeah. So, so if it's, if the battery dies or if it's turned off and I stand up in the middle of light night, am I going to fall over thinking that I'm going to be okay? And so we've been talking about where, where do you put the battery? So yeah, put it on the outside. That, that's, that's the way the cochlear implants are, right? Uh, if you put it on the inside, you got to open up the, the skin to change the battery, which causes wow. all kinds of funky bad things, right? Uh, and, and so, there, there, you know, there's just a lot of what's the best way to do this, even if you know it works, uh, to, to make it manageable and also safe for people. So those are some of the concerns that I had initially, and they, they've been working really hard on this, and it's, it's come a long way in the past five years. One of the interesting things I saw at a conference about a year ago where Charlie Della Santina was lecturing was they showed a patient where the processor was being turned on for the first time after surgery, and the patient lurches back in their chair and starts yelling because they start to get a sensation of movement. And it was just, it, they turned it on a little too strong, I think, but it was interesting that response. So, you know, when a cochlear implant falls off, which we've all had the processor fall off, patients can pick it back up in their death for a couple seconds. But if you think about it with a vestibular implant falls off, you'll be falling on the ground potentially. So yeah, like you said, securing it to the skull seems to be an important issue with it. It really is. And, and, and what Charlie has said is that there seems to be some carryover. So he's not seeing that, which was my, one of my fears that, uh, that if it uh, fell off or didn't work for a little while, what was going to happen? I don't think that that's happen happening, but um, right. it, it is interesting. Uh, yeah, he mentioned he was letting subjects not use it at night and didn't see a, you know, a, a negative effect with that, that they could take mm -hmm. it off at night and in the morning put it back on and they seem like they didn't like decompensate. Because remember, we always have the stibular tone and you think if you reduce it, the patient would start to adapt, you know, maladapt again, but apparently not. Oh, do you guys have anything else? I don't want to hold Dr. Whitney up anymore. We've gotten 50 minutes with her. This has been great. This has been amazing. I mean, you got you are a deep well of knowledge, and we are so so grateful for uh, your time and all of the great pearls of wisdom you're able to share with us. It was just amazing. Yeah, we can't thank you enough, Dr. Whitney, for joining us today. We're so pleased that you agreed to come on one <laughs> and let us pick your brain and share your wealth of knowledge with our audience. You're very welcome, and good luck. You're doing a great job here. Thank, thank you. you. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and Beep and BB treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls.
The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.